Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to put our thinking caps on and answer the question, can research be wrong? Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back to Therapist in Motion podcast. Paul here, joined today by Dan and K2. Hello, hello, hello. Hello. All right, guys, we're going to dive right into it. So talking about research, I just want to get your gut reaction, your visceral reaction to this article title. It's a strongly worded title. Formal physical therapy after total hip arthroplasty is not required. What do you got? What do you think? Where's that put you? It's a really bold statement there, Paul. And it's interesting, right? I mean, that that's that's not just me making a statement and asking for agreements or lack thereof. That is the title of the peer-reviewed and published article in 2017 by the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. So, good article, right? Legitimate. Um, legitimate source, legitimate journal. But, bold. Interesting. So, I don't know. What do you guys think? K2, what do you think when you read that title? Definitely. It was catchy, especially we are the physical therapist. My gut feeling was we want, I want to kind of defend ourselves in a way, but I was interested in what it really meant. I love that. I mean, that is, that's the tough thing, right? You want to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's hard not to get defensive. But interesting to try to say what, all right, let's listen. Let's, let's hear their thoughts. Let's see what they're actually saying. Which I think then leads to kind of the next question. With this article or any article you all read, I think one of the biggest mistakes we obviously see in here is people read an abstract read the conclusion, and take the conclusion as some type of statement of fact, um, when that is a unfortunately, typically limited um, <clears throat> result to actually end up with. What do you two do, or what is your process when you're evaluating literature? You know, I think that's a great question and something that I've struggled with over my career. First and foremost is when do I find time to read research, right? Besides just abstracts, which those can be very valuable and it may allow me to then go and look deeper. But really when I'm looking at research, there's probably two main things I'm looking for. One is who was included in the study and why, right? And then how detailed do they get in how the data was like captured or they 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 specified people into groups and what were those groups done, right? So like in this study, you know, they talk about the, the the therapy that was done post, not to get too far ahead, but, well, I want to know what therapy did they get? What exercises were provided? What was their frequency? What was their duration? What was their volume? What was their intensity? You know, how, when were they progressed? When were they not progressed? And I want some specifics because that's how I know if I can then apply it to the patients that I see in my clinic on a regular basis. I like what you said, Dan, and myself too. Sometimes finding the time to read the literature can be limited, but when I'm trying to find the time, sometimes I, my eyes going toward that literature supporting or favoring what we do or what I want to see. But at the same time, it is very interesting to read the article that challenges what we believe in. I love that you bring that up, K2, because I actually think, and all three of us have read this article, and we'll, we'll kind of get to some of our conclusions, but I think this is a great example of an article that is 
at first glance negative towards physical therapy. I don't think the results actually show that, as Dan said, I skip ahead, but I, I think it's pretty difficult to draw that conclusion from what they have. But I do think it's interesting because I think it might highlight some potential deficits we have as a profession and things we could improve upon. So Kid, you bring up a great point. Time is limited. And I'm a big fan of, you know, read abstracts and see if there's something like, okay, I'm intrigued. Let's dig deeper because we don't have time to read everything. But it is really easy to go towards familiar sources and familiar articles and things that seem promotionary of physical therapy or occupational therapy, whatever profession it is that we're looking at. And hard sometimes and look at things that seem contradictory to what we believe because you can garner almost more out of that sometimes. It's mm-hmm. an excellent, excellent point. I'm, I'm right with you guys, especially as far as what I look at. And Dan, you kind of talked about it. I look right to the methods. I've had conversations. I have students come in and be like, oh, well, stretching is not beneficial. That's what research says. Manual therapy is not beneficial. That's what research says. My first response is, oh, okay, cool. What was the methods that was in the article that you read that from? And typically I get a deer in the headlights look because, of course, <laughs> they just heard it from some professor they like and don't actually know it. I go right to the methods. I, If there's an article that I cite, I've read the methods to it. I want to know what that is and particularly everything you've pointed out, Dan, but especially the outcome measure. I always want to know how are they measuring their outcomes. I tend to find frequently the mistake I believe happens is the research is not wrong. The findings are correct. It's interesting how I find people think the interpretation of those findings should be. And that draws straight into what are you measuring your outcomes with? Mm -hmm. So with this article, the uh, formal physical therapy is not required after a total hip arthroplasty. Just give a little bit of the background on it so the listeners are familiar so what happened in this research, the individuals that received a total hip replacement, uh, anterior approach for all of the individuals, and they were broken into two groups, a group that had a home exercise uh, program that was prescribed to them appropriately, and they did this unsupervised at home, and a second group that received formal physical therapy. Um, everyone did receive home health. Everyone seemed, received the same aftercare. The basics were there. And there's 120 patients in the trial. So not huge, but a good end, right? Not a bad size research. Um, and if we go into what they were measuring with this, the primary outcome measure of this was the Harris HIP score, which is statistically validated as a good, effective, valid measure after a THA to see if they improve with function. The interesting thing here, though, is when we look at the Harris HIP score, it is an outcome measure for those unfamiliar that asks pain questions, functional questions, and mobility questions, which at first I was really appreciative that mobility is in there. I often find, especially with self-recorded outcome measures, it's all very self-reported function and not a whole lot of objective components. So I was, I was cautiously optimistic at first, emphasis on it first, um, <laughs> When I saw this, until I started looking deeper into this, have you guys looked at the Hip Harris score recently? Very briefly. So the the Hip the Harris Hip score, the Hip Harris score, the Harris Hip score. I keep flipping them. It is the Harris Hip score. Um, it's scored in a very simple matter. It's a summation of different points you get for checking different boxes based on how functional you are, how much pain you're experiencing. Zero being basically non-functional, not doing anything. A hundred being maximal score, maximal function. What I think was most interesting, what jumped out to me right away with this, is a pain score of none is worth 44 points out of 100. So that's, that's nearly, right? That's mm-hmm. nearly half of the study itself is coming simply from 
pain. Mm -hmm. The range of motion components ends up being about five points of the 100 total, with the in-between coming all from function. And kind of going deeper into it, if you go from moderate pain, which is worth 20 points, to slight pain, which is worth 40 points, it's a 20-point improvement. I assume most people post-operatively have at least moderate pain. And then I hope, because <laughs> I think hip replacements are pretty typically very beneficial procedures for people. I think they have often slight pain afterwards. You go 20-point improvement, that's actually the exact point measurement for a statistical improvement that was expected at a minimum on the Harris hip score is 20 points. So if you go up 20 points, you've made good functional progress, had an excellent outcome. So nothing could happen functionally. You could have only pain be your change. So then this is what I just want to ask you guys. So what do you think then? If the primary outcome measure is this score and this outcome measure is almost entirely revolved around pain, do you feel this then is a valid or appropriate measure? That's one of those things. I, I mean, it's, it's important that you go and look at the outcome tool, right? Because like you said, if, if I now know that that's how it's weighted, that just gives me a better understanding of where the surgeon is coming from, from and what he or she is looking for as the primary driver of what they are deeming a successful outcome. And I am not undermining the fact that our orthopedic surgeons do not value mobility because they do, right? But if they're utilizing the Harris hip score as one of their quote unquote gold standards, like Paul just alluded to, that is a primary driver on pain. And if they're saying one year later that there's a high probability that they're going to be in less pain and that will be correlated to what is found in the Harris hip score and in the literature, okay, now I'm armed with that information and that will help me with my education, both to the orthopedic surgeon and to my patient on where we can meet in the middle to still have the best benefit for my patient. Great point. And uh, just like you said, um, this Harris hip score uh, has so much emphasis on the pain and the majority of hip, you know, post uh, total hip replacement uh, clients, pain improvement is significant. So that itself just uh, significantly moves the number. At the same time, those specific function, sometimes stability, proprioceptive control, those things truly needed for the higher level function, that outcome is in this outcomes uh, test is, I feel like the diluted almost. So the majority of stuff, you know, majority of clients improved as that is more totally expected from that typical post-total hip arthropathy client. So sometimes like, you know, using outcome score, but is important, but is that definitely beneficial for this particular type of surgery? To me, I'm not sure. And you hit a really, really good point there, um, K2. So in the actual article itself, as any good article should have, they will discuss what are potential biases that may have existed. And they say in this article that the Harris hip score has a high floor and or ceiling effect, which means the outcome measure is traditionally susceptible to having low or high scores. Basically, you are feeling like you are limited in your function, you have a low score, or you're feeling like you're high in your function, and you have a high score. 
And it does not do a very good job of catching the in-between. It's, this is what it says in the, in the article, and this is what the research and literature says on it as well, which is an important thing to note. We're trying to compare two things, but we selected an outcome measure that's not good at comparing two things mm-hmm. other than good or not as good. Again, doesn't mean it's invalid, doesn't mean it's not useful, and mm-hmm. I think we could easily agree, all three of us here, Having decreased pain and improved function after surgery is a great outcome. I want that outcome. They probably went to conservative care before surgery, I would imagine, did not go the way they wanted to, injections, therapy, whatever else they tried, and so they had surgery to get this exact result. This exact result giving us, hopefully, the opportunity to do our job to help improve strength, mobility, function, stability, etc. So it's, it's a good outcome. This is appropriately reflects things, but all it does in my mind is reflect the first sentence of this actual research study. So when it says total hip arthroplasty is claimed to be one of the most highly successful surgical procedures as it consistently restores function, relieves pain, improves quality of life for patients having end-stage degenerative hip disease, I'd say, yeah, I think we all agree. And I think that this article, less than saying therapy is not beneficial, just reiterates the fact that this is a great surgical procedure. (laughs) This is a very beneficial one that we know is going to help our patients achieve better function. So then to dive to the next level, Dan, you had some good questions on methods. Kind of talk us through things you'd look for in the methods, and let, let's see what that then says to us. Well, yeah. So, I mean, it talks about how patients were put into groups, and some were supervised, and some were not. And and then it was there were some interesting things in there that I, I was looking at, and <clears throat> there was no specificity on what the exercises were, right? Who created the exercises for the unsupervised exercise group. Was that done by a physical therapist? Was that done by a surgeon and following a relatively generalized quote unquote protocol to follow, right? And then there are other couple interesting things that I found that at the at the post-op check-in two weeks after, if a patient self-reported that they were not at the progress that they wanted to be, they requested formal physical therapy and then they were in they their group was switched because of the request for formal physical therapy which is very interesting and i would have loved a subset to say well what happened in those patients scores did they change more significantly compared to the group that was in therapy to begin with did they have a slower than expected progress it like add another layer of depth and analysis there. I think that would have been very interesting from a methods then going to the results and the conclusion that may help us as physical therapists, again, go back to our orthopedic surgeon colleagues and say, you know what, maybe starting formal physical therapy immediately post-op in an outpatient setting is not the most ideal for X, Y, and Z reasons, but here is a more appropriate timeline, um, which is something, again, we've talked about offline in our show prep, is something that could be very, very warranted and allow us as therapists to have greater specificity when we are um, prescribing our exercise program for that client. It also didn't, to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, it didn't necessarily talk about overall compliance with the program moving forward and how long they were compliant and how they tracked compliance. Comparing that to another article that we read in this where this one was done by physical therapists where they tracked that only one of the 15 was compliant over the course of their uh, stent of physical therapy exercises. 
Yeah, I believe they, they did ensure that the individuals under the therapy group completed the appropriate round of therapies, you said, but there wasn't an amazing measure as far as what percentage that is for how many sessions they attended, home exercise program, plant sex. So yes, it was a little limited in that capacity, Dan, you are correct. Yes, and uh, just like uh, echoing what you said, Dan, uh, even control group and talking about Formal physical therapy, supervised exercises versus home exercise program. If the formal physical therapy was just providing the exercise for the prescribed protocol, if so, maybe they're doing exactly almost same thing, but more supervised. If so, it's not going to be so much different. I can see that. Or therapists allowed or actually provided more personalized, you know, individualized care. Considering other part of the body was, you know, uh, involved, th- those kind of stuff. I'm not sure. So even that itself kind of diluted the outcome of the study that I felt like. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Probably my biggest frustration when reading this article was the complete lack of discussion on what was the home exercise program that the unsupervised group received and what was the idea of the formal therapy. You know, as you said, K2, did they follow a protocol? Was it the same protocol as the unsupervised home exercise program? This literally compare unsupervised versus basically supervised. We don't know, which makes it really difficult for me as a reader to apply how beneficial therapy was or wasn't and how much improvement actually did happen for them in my mind i'm wondering maybe there is a problem maybe too often we do follow protocols i i'm not a big fan of being too protocol based and i think we're good at finding a happy medium between following protocol appropriately not breaking protocol of course but getting more specific and like mm-hmm. you said k2 having that specificity to the patient's needs and tailoring their program and progressing their programs and their loads as we've talked about previously um but I don't know if that happened here. I don't know if this this article might say to me that, let's say these are physical therapists that weren't working under the surgeons directly in a surgeon-owned practice, which it may have been. They weren't following protocol. Is there a lack out there of effective rehab post-THA? It could, but I can't draw any conclusion because I don't know what actually mm-hmm. happened in this study as far as the interventions provided. And for me, I don't want to discount a study, mm-hmm. but I'm not very interested in what it says if I don't know what they did specifically and how they were measuring it. And this is missing, has the how they're measuring it, but it's missing the what they did piece. You know, and I want to touch on one point that Dan brought up as well that was really important was that a a large number of individuals, 30 in particular, switched over to the formal physical therapy group, which is important. I mean, ethically, you shouldn't be withholding care from people, especially if they feel that they're behind the eight ball from where they should be. But it's an important component then of what did you use to measure behind? Was it pain wasn't what they wanted it to be? Was it function was slow? Was it motion? Was it strength? Acknowledging the fact that we should know what might have been lacking to help us as healthcare professionals recognize, because maybe we don't need three times a week, six, eight, 12 weeks of therapy postoperatively. This study could have been a great example of these people did have the same outcomes whether they did or didn't attend therapy when we recognized A, B, C, and D variables that were limited, brought them over to formal therapy and helped them catch up. This could be a good way to help us become more creative and break out of the doldrums of typical therapy plans of care. Unfortunately, that is lacking, so we don't know (laughs) what we can garner from the information here. 
And then Dan, you'd also uh, mentioned about a couple of other um, components that could exist as far as biases for the uh, authors. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, they, they make mention of it about their selection of individuals and that I think they pulled from like an initial 600 or so. And <clears throat> when they were talking about most likely the, the study design of supervised versus unsupervised exercises, could this have led to a selection bias where individuals who may have some apprehension may choose to not participate in this study because they know going in there's a potential for them to have unsupervised exercises and that may give them fear, apprehension, and that's something that's very real that they do acknowledge as well as the possibility of the relation to socioeconomic status and education level, um, meaning that it, you know perhaps people that joined this study were of higher education and socioeconomic status, meaning that they could be more motivated to direct the care and own the care on their own as compared to have to have the assistance of a educated and skilled professional. I think that that's just something for us to be aware of and regardless of it's a post-op total hip of any patient that walks in our door is creating a program and a frequency and duration that we, from our professional standpoint, first and foremost, think is right for this patient. One time a week, two times a week, five times a week, six times a week, whatever that may be. And then also recognize that the patient may say, you know what? I do not have the ability to do that for whatever reason, my schedule, my work, my family, my socioeconomic standpoint, my time, my travel, all of those things and how that may impact their ability to get better. And then, okay, if that happens, what are the things that we need to really watch for and look for on their visits to, let's say it is this total hip patient, to ensure that we and the doctor are taking care of this whole patient, especially if we talk about Harris hip score, where we know that the surgeon, it, it's, it's highly looking at their pain. Great. That is hugely important for me to know so that when I'm interacting with that patient, yes, I need to have pain on my mind, but I also know that that's something that the physician is going to be talking with them a lot about and the management and the expectations of that going forward where I then can focus on those other things and making sure that I'm keeping an eye on them to ensure everything else is progressing along. Love it. And I, I think all of us agree that there's definitely some lacking in methods here, right? We don't know what happened or the quality of therapy. And for the sake of time, I don't want to go into what we believe quality therapy looks like, but I do want to ask you guys outcomes. So we talked about the Harris HIP score, just for full clarity for listeners. They also measured the WOMAC, another outcome measure, uh, another subjective patient uh, function-driven questionnaire, and then the short-form 36 physical mental health. Those were the four components they've scored as far as this, just so we have it. So my curiosity then is I'm not looking for a formalized measure that you're welcome to suggest one, but if a family member, friend, loved one, etc., was receiving a hip replacement, what would you two want for you to feel comfortable at a year they've met the, quote, outcome you want to see? Okay, so if I ever um, make suggestion to my family member or friends going through total hip arthropathy and uh, considering either whether or not have a formal physical therapy or home exercise program, I would highly recommend physical therapy, formal physical therapy, because 
my goal and my expectation, my hope for that friends and family is not necessarily just recover from the surgery itself. That is okay to make sure they don't get any red flags or that, you know, unwanted outcomes, sometimes small portion of bell curve, sometimes happen that. Yes, that is very important to recognize and avoid if something happens, make proper, you know, action involve the doctors and all that. At the same time though, hip is just only one joint. And why they end up having that hip arthritis? Many times, sometimes unfortunate situation, maybe direct trauma to it. Sometimes many things leading up to that pathology, lots of dysfunction associated with it. I would love my family and my uh, friends to be able to go through that um, skilled sets of eyes to identify potential causes, maybe leading up to the pathology, but at the same time, those pathologies, um, dysfunction is going to be addressed so that when they come back from that surgery, not necessarily just recovery from the surgery, they're going to prevent the further injuries. At the same time, they're going to further enhance their function so that they're going to be enjoying their activities. Yeah, I think K2 gave some great examples of things that he would recommend. Other things I'm going to look at for one year out would be, are they back to participating in the activities that bring them joy and satisfaction, right? So is it golf? Is it walking? Is it playing with their grandchildren? Is it being able to get in out of their sports car um, or their boat, right? Like are those, are those things that they've been able to achieve and where are the opportunities within the collaboration between our profession and the orthopedic surgeons to ensure that those things are happening? That, like K2 said, ensuring that things, body parts that potentially had breakdown that went unrecognized, that caused them to have issues in their hip, assuming that it isn't a systemic genetic, you know, autoimmune type condition, right? But let's say it is true wear and tear. I want to ensure that my friends and family at least have the opportunity to be seen by a a therapist at X number of check-ins at a somewhat regular interval. And, and then if they're like, Ooh, this isn't going the direction that we want to go to be able to get you back to said function, then I would say, let's jump right into formal PT. I love what both of you guys said. And I, when I look at this, we talk in sports all the time about earning the right to do something, earning the right to run, earning the right to jump. I'm kind of thinking about the year, like earning the right to discharge to full life with everything. I mean, typically we talk about one year post-op. That's kind of the magical number, right? At one year, you should feel a lot better. There'll be some challenges until a year, but often at a year, that's when you're really like, I feel like myself again type of thing. But to really clear them for themselves, like I want to know. If I have a person had hip replacement, oftentimes they've had pain for a long time. They've had compensations for a long time. They've lost motion. They've lost strength. Have they built that strength back up? Do they have hip internal and external rotation. I expect some of it to change post-operative. I don't expect numbers might be the typical norms, but I'm kind of scared and I've seen plenty of people come that are a year or two post-op a hip replacement that have back pain. And you look and they have 10 degrees of hip IR at the absolute best, 25, 30 degrees of hip ER. And I was like, well, yeah, of course your back hurts. You, every time you try to turn a rotator move, you're not getting motion through your hip. You're making your back do all of the work. 
hip extension, especially as we're thinking about someone that's probably been stuck, not as mobile as they want to be, sitting for a long time, having pain, not even wanting to put pressure and load through their joint. It's going to limit them and they're going to have a difficult time getting back into an extended position often because they've lost some of that. So I want to see those things. That's where I, I feel like those measures are missing. I want to know how are they looking there and what can I do to say what's the best job I can provide my patient as far as their mobility to decrease, because I can eliminate, decrease the likelihood of things happening. And not to say that you're guaranteed to have back pain if your hip doesn't rotate. It doesn't mean it's going to happen for sure. And not to say that you should force hip rotation, especially if you have someone that had a hip replacement that's had hip dysplasia or other different conditions and things happen in their entire lives. And we know that, man, we almost kind of want some of those muscles to almost stiffen up a little bit and provide additional stability. Plus, of course, the changes you're going to get of the socket with the actual replacement. There's times and places for everything. It's not a one size fits all, but I think it registers back to what you guys have both said, specificity having eyes on it as opposed to just, oh, here's a generalized protocol that everyone can follow that will get you to the, the right place. So along those lines, then it was kind of interesting, like, are there some other studies out there that get into some of these equations? And it was interesting, a, a much smaller uh, patient surveys or patient size and um, <clears throat> number of subjects, but the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy had an article that was uh, titled The Outcomes of Total Hip Arthroplasty, Study of Patients One Year Post-Surgery. And they're looking at individuals at both went through formal therapy and didn't. It was interesting. They, they had some findings of pretty similar strength and pretty similar range of motion measurements side to side in the operative and the non-operative hip. What they did see was a statistically significant decrease in single limb stability of the post-operative hip as opposed to the non-operative hip. You guys surprised by this fact? No, I am not surprised by that fact at all. In, in all honesty, when I was reading it and taking notes, I wrote, duh. Next <laughs> <laughs> it's like no kidding you yeah, you changed that. it from its normal bony uh, anatomical makeup and now you've put metal in there which is a foreign substance and we're going to ask this the body to have this same level of proprioception depending on the level of training and specificity of exercise again like no kidding we saw a reduction in the single limb, limb mm. stability I think it was also one of those things that's like, okay, if I think about all the people I have seen with post-op total hips, the vast majority of them have had symptoms for a long time, right? They have probably had significant flattening of the head of the femur, which then changes most likely the length of their limb, which means then it changes the length of the muscle, the tendon, and the ligamentous attachments around the hip and all of the things that attach to the hip and the pelvis. So now we're asking a lot of things to change and where we want to measure it quickly, not necessarily going to happen quickly as, as quickly mm -hmm. as we think, and also helping to set that expectation with the client and how we think about how are we going to challenge the proprioceptive input and feedback into this new joint that only has a couple hundred thousand to a million steps versus their uninvolved leg that has trillions of steps, right? And, and that information and that feedback into the brain, I would expect there to be a proprioceptive difference, potentially not as big as this study found, though. And not to, not to go too in-depth in this study, but it was interesting. I do want to make note that in this study, they said there was no range of motion issue because they were symmetric. I'm a little worried because I believe the average external rotation was 22 degrees. 
And it did state in the methods pretty nicely how they measured it, which was in a supine 90-90 position. So not entirely positive how these subjects had less than 30 degrees of hip ER. Um, but I- ignoring that piece of the equation <laughs> that terrifies me a little bit, yeah, you know, we're, of course, duh. He said it perfectly, Dan. Like, yes, it only makes sense they didn't have some of those benefits. Even taking a step further, if I'm looking at a balance assessment, yeah, single limb, st- simple, single limb stability, I certainly use. But I really also want to know dynamic stability. Can they move into a position and return from that position? I feel like so often, especially with falls, someone goes outside their base of support, outside the, a place where they're safe. And they can't return from it. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, instead of safely returning back controlled, they uncontrolled, well, go places they shouldn't end up mm-hmm. landing. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, and thank you, K2, for finding it, the same authors that had that last article suggested a follow-up saying, well, we think maybe there'd be a benefit to having a specific stability strength program at like four months post-operatively. Same thing, you know, we don't need to do things too early, but maybe there's a benefit to doing more therapy later. So Sam Authors later came along and said, article, effects of late phase exercise program after total hip arthroplasty, a randomized control trial. And they showed good benefits. They looked at the four months post-op and they showed an improvement in stability that measured things out to then equal to the non-operative limb. And here's the kind of cool thing with it. They didn't launch a three times a week, six week program. They saw the patients, established a appropriate home program. They then went for a two-week follow-up to make sure that they were adhering and were able to perform things correctly at the right level, and then they let them go. So this isn't something that's massively costly on the system. You're talking a couple of visits, but think about that. A couple of visits that improves your single limb static stability and your single limb reaching stability to a point that decreases fall risk, I think a couple of visits of PT is worth that because one of the interesting components to the initial article that we first were looking at the uh, formal pt is not required article it talked about cost talking mm-hmm. one of the major drivers of this article was how can we save money and they looked and they, they ended up saying that you know the typical physical therapy plan of care looking outside of like medicare and stuff like that is going to be you know a little over two thousand dollars for the full plan of care and they estimated this out of the number of total hip uh, replacements over in the United States over an entire year. They came up with something under $700 million of savings, is what they would say, which is that's not a small chunk of change. That's nice. I'm sorry to use the wonders of Google really quickly. Uh, and I'm just <laughs> curious, what's the cost on the health system to falls? Um, and the cost on the health system to falls, according to the CDC, this was non-fatal falls, by the way, in one year, was $50 billion. Was that a billion with a B? That was a B. <laughs> that was a B, Dan. That's a B. Dog stepped on a B. Um, so when we look at that, I'm thinking, so we're talking about saving, you said 2000 here. We're even suggesting maybe you don't need to come as frequently in formal therapy to save over seven or under 700 million when we're looking at saving a risk that could prevent the side in the 50 billion dollars worth of medical expenses i think that's worth it i think that's fair that's without me even getting into the cost of the surgery itself but we won't go down that route for this podcast that's a smart choice paul <laughs> <laughs> we love you physicians keep referring to us thank you <laughs> um so <laughs> What I want to look at then is, you know, let's look at this article and say, what can we garner? You know, our first question when we started this, I said mm-hmm. was, is research wrong? What do you guys think? We've talked about this. We've looked and we said the methods, we don't really know what the methods were. They moved some people around, thankfully, to give them 
some therapy if they weren't quite where they were expecting to be. The outcomes really were reflective of mostly pain changes, some function change, not a whole lot of the movement side, definitely nothing on the stability side, which others showed were a difficulty, and some other biases we talked about there. So I think we're in agreement this article might have some limitations, but then is it wrong? Absolutely not. Actually, going back to K2's point about taking the time to look at research that may challenge our initial thought process. As I've sat here and reflected on what we have discussed, as well as reading the article quickly yesterday, and then going more in depth today and really trying to critically analyze it. The biggest thing for me that I'm taking away is I now know more specifically how the orthopedic surgeons are approaching this patient. If I have a patient in front of me that is preoperative, right? And we know that it, their hip is significantly degenerative, but we're just working on some prehab to, to build some strength and maybe a little bit of mobility. I can help set the stage for that patient of the approach that the surgeon's going to take and utilize that. This is, as Paul alluded to earlier in that, the first sentence of the article, this is fantastic at removing pain and starting to restore function. There's probably nothing better at this point out there than doing this, assuming that they've, you know, kind of gone through the appropriate path to get there, right? And they just haven't jumped immediately to surgery. <clears throat> but I think what it does for me is it helps me know where my colleagues are. And I, I'm saying colleagues as in the orthopedic surgeon, even though I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, right? But so that I can communicate with them more specifically on the things that they want to see for me in rehab, which they actually care significantly about pain and the change in the pain. I need to be aware of that in my communication back to them, as well as where are the opportunities and the voids that they have in the way that they're looking at patients and where I can help them see my value for the patient client that's in front of me. I like that. So to answer your question, it depends. <laughs> right? That is the answer to everything always. So true, right. At the same time, I going back to what the, the comment that Paul made, you know, we always you mentioned that we want to be a better educated, great consumer of literature, research. I think same thing. So just looking at the title and the conclusion and just repeating that to other people, maybe we are not going to be a great advocate as a professional, healthcare professional. So that really, need, I personally felt like we, I really need to dive into that research study so that to determine if the author made a great interpretation from that data research study design itself. But if they come up with some conclusion which is too general or make a generalization of a statement, we have to ask questions to ourselves too. Then at the same time, if that research is very specific enough and stating something maybe challenging against our thought, I w I'd like to sincerely accept that, you know, so that I can be a great, great advocate for our clients. Then if some physical therapy, formal physical therapy for whatever amount of uh, frequency of Therapy is not necessarily needed. Yes, I want to educate them. But at the same time, I'd like to challenge ourselves if that physical therapy in general was using as a control group. We want to make sure to let the world know 
what individualized physical therapy could make differences if there is such a thing there out there. I love it. You two said it absolutely perfectly. You know, and if I look at this, I, I don't think I have the um, <clears throat> power to claim they are wrong, but I don't agree with their conclusion, you know, as you stated, K2. But I do agree with the numerical findings. I don't think their findings were wrong. Again, these are quality researchers that know statistics and they know how to do things correctly. What they found was correct. It's the interpretation of the findings that I, I don't think is really an accurate interpretation. I don't think that they really compared what they may have set out to compare. I believe they set out to compare formal, skilled physical therapy compared to just a compliant home exercise program. I don't, I don't see anything here that lets me know they delivered what I think is the appropriate level of skilled physical therapy. And then the outcome measure they used really looked at mostly pain and some function and wasn't specific enough to what I would want to see in therapy for me to say they compared those two things. I just see this as another study that suggests and helps to validate that you get really good outcomes with a hip replacement. It's a good surgery. Taking that then, the question becomes, I want to ask, like, so what, what did we garner out of this? And KT did a very nice job talking about some of the things we can get. And when I look at this, it does give me some interesting things. And let's, let's just pretend for a minute the therapy in here was quality, right? It's good, good enough therapy for us to be, yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy with my, my friend, my family member receiving this, this level of therapy. It then does become interesting because way too often I find therapists that think that, oh, I have to get, again, two or three times a week, six to eight weeks, or I have to see in this time frame. Maybe there is a good benefit to working with some local surgeons and replicate what was done in this, in this, in this study. Maybe you have a two-week check-in or a four-week check-in or a six-week check-in or something around that you know, half of a month to month and a half time frame where you look and say, how are the outcomes going for this person? Or maybe you have an orthopedic surgeon that has a great relationship that they can do this or their PA can take care of it. And if they are below certain numerical thresholds, they refer them to therapy immediately. And you don't have to see them regularly, but you get them, quote unquote, caught back up with the rest of the study populace, per se. And then we also know that a lot of a lot of surgeons I see on here have that like three month follow up, maybe six month follow up. Great time to get in front of therapy again to be able to go and say at that four month mark is what they studied here, but somewhere in that three to six time frame, let's have them come see K2 and get a specific individualized stability program, strength program, dynamic stability program to help them, one, decrease fall risk, two, get back to full function, three, really get back to what they want to do in higher level activities. It's another thing, the Harris hip score they didn't get into, important activities, good activities, but walking, stairs, the usual outcomes. What if I have someone go back into a kickball league? I know there's some surgeons might be scared of a THA kickball, but people are doing more. I play tennis with guys that have had a hip replacement in their past. No, they can't do what they used to do, but they're still out there playing. They're still out there grinding on the court. We Surgical techniques have improved massively. There's a lot that can happen. You can get back to higher level activities. So if we're going to get them there, are we giving them the tools they need to reach? I don't know. But I'd like to see, instead of thinking we have to always give everyone therapy, especially if they talk in the study about how some people complained about the barriers from a higher copay or still having a deductible, which I don't know how they didn't make the surgery. Maybe they're separate into PT and, and surgical and uh, other specialties or individuals that have difficulty with travel or things of that nature. 
we don't always maybe need as many visits in therapy, but can we get away with, not get away with, but give an appropriate experience with a couple to check in. If you're doing well, see them again later, get specific, find out what they want to do and target their goals and give them the tools to accomplish it themselves. And if they do, excellent. If they're not, I'm going to bring you back in. You and I are going to take care of this together so we can ensure as many people as possible really reach and reach beyond what we might initially think they can achieve post-operatively. Fair conclusion, fair thought process for it, guys? Absolutely. I love it. Well said. So just to go through, and again, I, I highly recommend, don't take our word for it thoroughly. You know, read these articles yourself. And I, I, we talk about what we look for. I'm a big fan of the methods section, the outcomes, and you heard from others. What, what are good things to look at? But so this form of physical therapy after total hip arthroplasty is not required. It's a 2017 article from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Um, a number of different authors on it. Primary authors was Matthew Austin, Brian Urbani, U-R-B-A-N-I. Um, so just kind of some different individuals you can look up, and I definitely recommend you look at that study. The other two we looked at here was the outcomes of a total hip arthroplasty, study of patients one year post-surgery. That was from the Journal of Orthopedic Sports and Physical Therapy. And then again, the exact same authors, which was Elaine Trudell-Jackson and Susan Smith, looked at the effects of late-phase exercise program after total hip arthroplasty, a randomized control trial. So go ahead, take a look at those uh, surveys and studies, take a look at that, take a look at others, and just kind of dig into it and see is there anything you could garner that maybe you didn't initially catch or initially go through, and hopefully we can help you be a little bit better digester of research and interpreter of research that exists to help elevate your practice. And thank you for listening to Therapist in Motion podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app.